when I get in the zone and I'm coding, whatever, right? I can go for hours. I don't notice the time. I don't get tired. I don't get hungry. Um, I have a grand time at it. Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. This week, we're going to focus more on the technical side of things, but also on how to help the organization understand why some of the technical practices are so important and maybe hopefully give you a better way of explaining them to people who don't always understand them. So today, um, Rich Domkeller is here. Rich, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. And you're, you're listed as a technical consultant, but that barely scratches the surface of your background. Can you talk a little bit about where you're coming from for the folks that are listening? So I've been in the software game professionally since 1992. I used to be a rational unified process guy, uh, very into UML and big upfront design. And I was introduced to the Agile community in 2004, where I went through a two-week intense uh, transformation of changing my thinking, uh, looking at tools and techniques and practices like collective code ownership, uh, test-driven development, continuous integration. And it really radically shifted the way that I looked at the process of developing software and the intent of my job as a software engineer from isolated problem solver with uh, lots of magic tools to a communicator and a problem solver who is engaged in what is the business up to. So shifting off of that, um, you know, I know lots of programming languages and algorithms and speak a language you don't to, I can communicate with you and work with you to achieve a business outcome. And it was a long transition. It didn't, you know, was not instantaneous by any stretch of the imagination. It probably took me uh, two years to really internalize TDD and what it meant. Uh, and at least as long to really understand the huge benefit you get out of continuous integration uh, and all of the automated static checks that we can do in our code to improve our process and improve our quality. So that's kind of where I came from. And in the past 10 years, I've really gotten more into, uh, while I still build software, I've gotten more into the transforming organization and helping people with the transition from where I used to be to where I am now, uh, bringing them through, um, you know, the why of, these practices and why do we do the stuff we do um, and how it makes us much more effective at solving business problems and greater success for our organizations. Okay. So can I, can I kind of walk through some of this a little bit and ask some questions? Sure. Absolutely. Uh, all right. So the, all the practices you talk about all come from extreme programming for the folks who aren't familiar with some, we'll, we'll dig into some of them in a few minutes, but um it sounds like when you discovered that stuff that it was kind of like the light came down from the sky and you were like, yes, this is it. <laughs> is that? Um, no, unfortunately not. Uh, okay. So, so I don't want to belabor the details, but I've been working in an organization with lots of upfront design on a really hot project and they had a restriction on contractors 18 months and you're out. So they kicked me out and I didn't have another job. And so I took my first job in an agile community, uh, somewhat under duress. I needed a job and they needed a developer. And, um, I, I did my best to be open-minded and, and not resist. Cause I'd heard about some of these things and I was like, Oh, that sounds like a bunch of nonsense. Right. Yeah. Um, 
So I worked really hard on my mindset to be open to it. And uh, I struggled a lot. I had a lot of conversations, um, you know, via instant messenger or face-to-face. We didn't have Twitter and Facebook yet. So uh, it was all uh, just talking to my peers and, and trying to understand, you know, what does this mean? Like test driven development. When I first heard about it, I thought this is all about getting tests in place and it's a trick. If I write the tests first and then write the code, <laughs> I can't avoid writing the tests. Wow. Uh, it turns out that's not what it's about. So I want to just jump in. That's really funny because I remember when you're talking about it, I'm remembering the first time I heard somebody explain TDD. And it was before I knew what extreme programming was or any of that stuff. And I remember listening to this developer talk. And I'm a project manager who just by nature distrusts every developer. And I'm like, this is the only guy I want to work with because he makes <laughs> sense. Um, yeah. So test-driven development is a design practice, right? Yeah. It, it's about discovering what code you need. Um, and there are lots of metaphors that you could use uh, to, to try to translate that maybe into the real world, but maybe they don't translate well. Uh, sculptors don't carve things from stone. They remove stone to reveal what's there. Okay. Test-driven development, this is maybe stretching the metaphor, but test-driven development is about expressing uh, what should be there and then creating something that satisfies that need. And uh, when done well, uh, the tests are coupled to the code only in a minimal way in uh, such that we can express an intent and then deliver that intent, but leaving the code to be pliable. So you hear about the test-driven nanocycle of red-green refactor. So we start with a failing test. Uh, we build just enough code to make that test pass. Then we examine our design and we may tweak and change things in order to improve the clarity of that design. And the holistic intent, um, uh, first off, is to make sure that the code does what we believe it should do, uh, that we're building it right, they say. Uh, they say, I say, we say. Uh, we're building the thing right. And... Uh, the sec- there's a sort of a secondary activity here, which is I'm communicating, not just with myself and not just with the compiler, but with all the developers who come after me. What did I intend for this to do? How did I intend for it to behave? Um, my tests are an expression of what I wanted. And then the code itself, right, even if it were standing alone, is an expression of how I would satisfy those requirements. And it's necessary to be... Um, clear and clean and precise on both sides. So in both cases, well-named, in both cases, following good design and development practices like things you may have heard of like solid and dry, um, which, you know, those are deeper technical concepts, but the idea is that I'm building both pieces of code as if that is the asset to the organization. So with the goal of being able to communicate, what the heck does this, you know, do and, and can I understand it? You had another question. I'm sorry. Yeah. So the thing you said, I've been kind of like, this happens to me in podcasts. People will say something and I'll get stuck on a phrase. And it's like the only thing I hear for the next three minutes. Um, <laughs> you mentioned writing code um, for the people that come after you. Um, yes. The thing that always surprises me about developers is the developers that I meet who are people that, I mean, developers I know, like guys I know are like really technically sharp 
and really great communicators and people that I would trust. Like if I was going to pick a team, like these guys would be on my team. And 90% of the time, those are the ones who say, my code doesn't need to be commented. It speaks for itself. Um, and I always think about all the people that are going to come after them who are going to be like, this guy didn't know what he was talking about. What was he doing here? Um, are these kind of practices going to help you extend that conversation? I mean, if everybody left their work thinking like, what have I done to make the job easier of the guy who picks this code up in 10 years, it would be a very different world. It would be absolutely be a different world. Um, so there's actually a poster out there that says, uh, write your code like the developer who comes after you is a sociopath with your home address. Um, <laughs> Couldn't make it happy, like write it like your kid's going to pick this code up and have to deal with it? <laughs> it it's sort of a grim picture, but yeah. uh, it resonates with developers. I mean, you're yeah. there, you're in front of the machine, and you're pulling your hair out saying, what were they thinking? I don't understand the intent. And so we talk a lot about intent revealing code, and we talk about uh, design principles like solid uh, or dry, right? Dry is don't repeat yourself. Solid is an acronym of acronyms for different design principles in the code. And we, okay. we question why haven't they followed these principles and practices that we, most of us purport to be the right way. Sometimes the tests can help reveal that, right? The tests can certainly reveal the mindset of the author. Um, it's sort of a little detective game that you play. You read the tests and you read the names of the test, and then you reflect upon how does that relate to the code on, in question. And maybe the discovery is, um, while I may perceive two things as independent behaviors of a system, the author perceived them as a combined behavior. Yeah. Uh, and so when I look at a test that, say, has uh, a complicated assertion, right? So a test should have one logical assertion. It should only test that one thing is true. Um, something that the author saw as one thing is true, I might see as two things is true. And this helps me put myself into the mindset of what did the author intend to be understood about the code? And that informs me about its implementation. So then when I'm looking at something and saying, but that doesn't follow a single responsibility principle, then I look at the tests and the tests tell me, oh yes, it does, because the thing I'm thinking of as two independent activities are one. And so it's not an easy thing. It's like any kind of writing or speaking, you have to practice it and work at it. But if, uh, if I can write the tests and write the code in such a way that those intentions are revealed, then the consumer of my code has a leg up in understanding what's going on and a likelihood of being able to find a scene to inject a new behavior or modify a behavior or heaven forbid there's a defect in your code, find and remediate a defect. Okay. Um, so, Again, it's, it's, we're communicating, we're trying to write uh, uh, an explanation in executable code that says this is what it needs to do and this is how it does it. And if we've done it cleanly, well-named, well-structured, following conventional patterns, those things, um, then the consumer lowers the cognitive barrier to understanding what the code does, making it more extensible, making it easier to use. And then we layer on top of that various design principles that give us pliability, um, fluidity, expressiveness within the code, uh, and simplicity in form and shape. So we apply the four design, uh, four simple design principles and things like that. And, uh, and this allows us to flex to business needs. So when business rules change or features are added to a system, 
well-structured systems with all of these tests are really easy to modify. And so we're okay. not, oh my goodness, I have to redesign the world. This will take six months. We're like, let me read some tests and make these two, three changes and away we go. Okay. So I can't imagine that anybody on the business side of the house would not be shaking their head up and down to the way that you're saying what you're saying and the way you're explaining it. But just to play, play the skeptic, um, I would expect that many of those business-minded people would be shaking their head up and down and going, yeah, but not for this one. That'll be on the next one. For now, just crank that sucker out as fast as possible. We're going to throw it all away. Just don't worry about it. We're going to burn it down in the end. Um, sure. How do you, I mean, and that's why they want Agile, so they get everything faster. So when you walk into an organization where, where that the culture doesn't value reducing the cognitive barrier and doesn't value the, the fact that the code itself is the asset as much as anything else, when they don't value people, when they don't understand all these, you know, different technical practices that are going to help them play a longer, healthier game. Um, how do you have those conversations with people? It's, it's almost like you have to teach them a language to talk to you. Sure, sure. So I guess there are two ways to look at this. So organizations oftentimes are responding to market pressure. And uh, that market pressure may be genuine. Like if we don't do this now, Facebook or Twitter, somebody's going to eat our lunch and we're, we're not going to be in the market anymore. And so there's an existential threat. And so those pressures are real and we need to recognize that those are real and consider uh, from a software engineering perspective, what is the most cost-effective, reasonable approach that we can take? And can we accept on top of that some technical debt? So a planned deficiency in design or implementation with a payback plan that says this will get us into the market, uh, keeping us ahead of our competition, and we have a plan for remediating the negative impacts this might have on our organization. And so that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is, and part of me says that this is just the way we've been sort of conditioned to behave. Uh, but I think that some of, some of our incentive models drive us to behave like the sweet quarterly bonuses or uh, some measured uh, aspect of our job that impacts our income or our you know, longevity in our position uh, that cause us to respond with negative pressure. So um, counterproductive pressure is maybe a better term for it, where we drive to maximize velocity in a team, get as many story points executed as possible, deliver features, technical cost be damned. Uh, you know, you, and human cost. And human cost. The, the consequence of it is human cost, right? So I basically told somebody, you need to operate at the highest capacity level you're capable of and uh, compromise your principles and your beliefs and the quality of your work in order to satisfy an artificial threat to failing to deliver within a sprint or by some defined time period uh, a feature that I want. And that can be very ultimately very demotivating to developers, right? Um, like we always joke about developers being cynical and sarcastic. <laughs> There's a good reason they're like... <laughs> Right. How do you think they got that we way? They made them that way. Uh, yeah. yeah. Man management keeps telling us that quality is really important and then not giving us the time we need in order to build quality software. Um, 
And but okay, well, look, I want to since you're actually a developer. I mean, I I know lots of developers that if I say we want quality, how long will this take? It'd be infinity. <laughs> like, isn't there something to be said for like, yes, you know what? You don't have enough food. You don't have enough water. Get it done anyway, and then whatever they you know make what you produce as elegant as possible. Isn't there? It's dysfunctional, but isn't there some strength in there too that you skills that you can build? There are skills that you can build. There's a pragmatism that you have to adopt. Okay. Um, so, you know, we've always been critical of the ivory tower architects or or uh, philosopher kings who rant about this is what perfection looks like. This is nirvana. This is what you should be doing. Um, like Steve Jobs. Reality, like Steve Jobs. Steve yeah. Jobs, cult of personality, uh, edge case. There will be one in our lifetime. Um, I'm hoping for a second or a third, but there, there was been a nicer so one, maybe, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, some of the things that he came at, like from a marketing perspective, the Macintosh will never respond with an inhuman looking error message. Yeah. Seems legit. Uh, made the system very usable. Instead of blue screen of death, I got a nice pop-up that said internal air 503. The system has experienced an issue you know, click here to report. Um, that was a nicer user experience and it made sense for, for that product. When we look at, at the, the software process where we've got product owners or um, program managers or line managers uh, driving towards deadlines uh, and those deadlines are often artificially imposed, right? Okay. Some, some person somewhere said this should take six months and come hell or high water, we'll be done in six yeah. months. <laughs> Yes. Uh, without, without, without accounting for, is my staff well enough trained, well enough organized? Do they have the tools they need? Is their equipment sufficient? Uh, are they properly educated? All of these, these considerations, don't worry about any of those things, will be done in six months. And we crack the whip and we push them. And then they produce junk. And then we turn around and we ridicule them for doing an inadequate job and saying, how come your stuff is bad? And... We don't listen to the answer, which is you barely gave me a chance. And building an organization from, from the ground up, you know, you take your college graduate who's been pumped full of whatever it is he got in his, uh, you know, five-year collegiate yeah. education. Uh, he's learned a lot of good stuff and he thinks he knows what he's doing. Then he comes to work and he meets a developer and she's been with the organization for seven years. She really understands the business domain. She knows where the bodies are buried, uh, but she's not current on all these new te newfangled techniques, right? Whatever they. But you're do. saying that he, the one that just got out of school, is more up to speed than her. Uh, is probably using a more current technology. Okay. Um, because they're not in the quagmire of um, we're not going to upgrade the servers. We're not going to advance uh, the but platform. Do the schools one. do that? I just assume the schools, I mean, like I know on the project management side, what they're churning out is like three or four years behind the rest of the curve. Uh, sure. Three or four years behind current state, but a lot of, of many, many organizations, I can't say all, but many, many organizations are five, 10 years behind. Okay. Uh, the larger organizations, their cycle time on a Java JDK or a C sharp platform is generally very slow. Okay. Um, and so you find yourself, you know, you're like, oh, I just learned Java 9. And you walk in your first day on the job and it's Java 1.4. And you're like, yeah. what the heck? 
<laughs> right? Like, you guys are understanding these strange tools. <laughs> yes. Right. Um, I mean, we still have COBOL in the world, right? Yeah. Um, there's nothing wrong with COBOL, but it's sort of weird that we're using this language that's been around for 45 years. And there's probably still people that don't eat track tapes too. Right. Right. So, <laughs> so we've got this, this new person who doesn't understand the business domain, doesn't have any professional experience. They're used to deadlines based on, you know, my homework is due by Friday. Yeah. We've got this other person who's in this older uh, technology mindset who's got business domain experience and kind of knows where the friction is in the system, but hasn't been enabled. Uh, and we pair those people up somehow, same team at least. And yeah. we say, go, go get some work done. And by the way, it's due here and there. Well, this new person who knows these new cool technologies and has a fresh perspective uh, is effectively repressed by the system as you're new and you don't know what you're talking about. And the veteran is accustomed to cutting corners and you know, work in the system, work in the system to get things done. Yeah. And the end not get laid is, off. Right. We've missed out on the benefit of both of these people. Yeah. And so, so we're not accounting for all of that human condition that's going on there. And we need to create environments where we have open conversations where we can say, Hey, you know, I just took this class in advanced JavaScript techniques and I learned this cool thing and it could totally solve our problem but we would need to make these changes and an openness in the organization to say, let's have a spike. Let's do an experiment, see if that's effective for us. And then let's disseminate that across the organization. But instead we're in this old grind of just get it done. Don't learn any new techniques. Um, you know, we're going to learn new techniques when IBM finally kicks us off the mainframe or whatever. <laughs> um, Take away my punch cards. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so, there's a lot of dynamics there that go on and it, it's all situational. It depends upon the organization that I've been in organizations now that have, you know, cutting edge technology right on the cusp. Their staff is trained in specific silos of that technology, but they haven't learned how to work together. They still, the, the organization still operates in the go to your cube and be quiet and do what I told you mode. Yeah. Uh, there's no collaboration. So you get a very uneven distribution because one person went to, you know, Northern Florida and another person went to Georgia Tech and they learned different things from their professors. And so they're doing their C-sharp differently. And then when the systems come together, they may function and things might work, but the stylistically the code is different. And so now I've created this little maintenance problem underneath of when I look at this code, I have to think this way. And when I look at that code, I have to think a different way. And uh, none of it's test driven. <laughs> And, um, you know, maybe there isn't continuous integration to tell me that when I make a change, uh, everything still compiles correctly or interfaces correctly or test automation is in place. You know, there are all these consequences to the system. And it's because the, the business isn't thinking about the software like an asset. The business doesn't think about it as this software is where the money comes from. Right. Right. So we joke about like the money printing machine, don't break the money printing machine, but there's some aspect of go to the money printing machine and see if you can make it print more money faster. Yeah. And that requires an openness to these techniques and to, to this thinking. So if you can come in to an organization when you're working on a transformation gig, if you were to walk in and they were just like, here's a blank check, whatever you want to do. And you got to, you know, set up all the 
servers you needed to run, you know, CI and TDD and whatever other practices you want to do, and you got to pair people or have them mob whenever you wanted to, um, you could do all that. You could go through all those motions, but that doesn't mean that the organization is going to stop thinking of developers like disposable razors. How do you right. get that to happen? Well, or, or, or bet maybe that's too ridiculous of a question. It's too big. Um, what, what would you do to try to make progress on that side of things? Like the understanding, like the digging under the practices, you know, mm -hmm. the, the first part of it. So we look at the organization and its structure and how is it oriented towards its work. Right. Um, one of my favorite questions to ask people in the room is, do you know what the purpose of our company is? Yeah. Can you, can you repeat the mission statement? That's, and then love that. Can, can you tell me how your job function fits into that goal? Yeah. Uh, which for some people can be terrifying because they're like, I'm not sure. And then they kind of get into their own little existential threat spot and go, why am I here again? Uh, but we can usually work through that. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess, you know, you, your first question was given all the money in the world. Because um, money's not people's hearts. They're two totally different things. Exactly. And it's not, I would spend a lot of money trying to align people around the mission. Okay. Uh, so your company X, you build product X. Uh, and do you understand your role and your mission with respect to X? Why are we making an X? Uh, who benefits from it? How do they benefit from it? Where does the money come from? So, you know, if we sold cars, uh, selling cars doesn't really make money. Selling service on cars makes money. Yeah. So it's not about selling cars per se. If we um, are a humanitarian organization, um, it's not per se about uh, educating people in, in a general sense, but it's about saving lives through that education. Um, you know, understanding that really, and then how, do, how does my job relate to this? Like I'm the software guy, so I'm building the online uh, learning management system that facilitates the education, or uh, I'm building the service desk application that gets the parts ordered and manages supply chain. That's my impact on the revenue stream for the organization. Getting that alignment then enables me to say, okay, so here's some tools and techniques and practices and, and things to think about around how to do your job more effectively, more efficiently, yeah. more uh, sustainably. You know, because when, going back to the earlier part of the conversation where we're talking about the XP practices, right? Like, why am I doing this stuff? TDD is this design principle that results in automated tests and continuous integration helps me integrate my code and run those things. Why is that valuable? Well, it creates flexibility, agility in the system, allows me to be more pliable and, and resolve different business situations more quickly. But if I don't know what those business situations are, that's all just sort of theoretical. I can turn on time, but I don't know why I would turn. So I, I'm going to, I want to check in with you on this because I've only done TDD once. I did one online mobbing thing because I'm not a programmer and I, you know, I know what it is, but I don't know how to do it. I got to do it one time. Sure. And as a project manager, I come to this with the understanding. I look at it like this is a great way to create some kind of 
guardrails to help us keep from wandering away from the scope. Like all, you know, you don't realize that you've walked out the door and <laughs> tripped over the side of the mountain until you're halfway down. Um, but you're talking about it from a complete opposite perspective. Is my viewpoint off? Well, I think maybe there's some conflated ideas. Okay. So acceptance tests, uh, which is a higher level of testing. It's, it's, there's a lot more business involvement in what is an acceptance test. Acceptance tests help guide us towards what is done look like. Okay. Um, how do I know that I've delivered on the intent of the work I'm doing? So if I'm adding um, a calculator feature to my tax application, you know, double click in the box and the little calculator pops up. Um, the intent is to make it easy for the user of my tax system to be able to do some quick math to add up values for, you know, what their deduction on uh, professional expenses was. If I understand the intention and how that relates to my customer, then I make one set of decisions and one set of choices around what I'm going to build. Okay. And, and when those acceptance tests pass, then I know I've delivered upon the intent. When I go to do TDD, it's more about uh, understanding what code do I need to build next in order to ultimately satisfy that business acceptance criteria and how do I know that I've done it right. Okay. So um, I, I'm much closer to the metal and I'm, I'm really using it as a design process. I know some things about what I'm trying to build. So I start building tests, which are just questions about, can the system do this? Can the system do that? Okay. Um, some of those are brass tacks, bare metal programmer stuff like, what if I gave it nothing as input, what would it do? So nothing plus one is what? Right. Uh, what, what if I gave it two plus two, uh, I should get four, and two times two should be four. And if I have enough of those tests, I can tell the difference between the multiply unit and the add unit, right? If I don't have enough of those tests, they look the same, right? Uh, right? So, um, I'm going through this evolutionary process where my design and, and the, the constituent parts of my system evolve out of this test-driven practice where I'm seeking to understand everything my system needs to do. And a side effect of it is that I get tests when I'm done. So I'm asking a question like, the system should do this, yeah? Okay, yeah, it should. So let's go make the system do that. Well, if it does that, then it needs to do this next thing. And I'm growing my understanding of the code. And because it's a red-green refactor, that third step, refactor, I look at the code and I say, is this the best design? Is it intention revealing? Is it well-named? Is it clean? Does it follow whatever design principles that I feel are applicable, properly modularized uh, in the code structure in the right place? All of those things, right? Okay. So I'm getting that, I'm getting that refinement right away. Right. Uh, not three months from now, I look, look at it and go, oh, what a mess. Yeah. I just, <laughs> what was I thinking? Yeah. yeah, I'm just fixing it right there on the fly. And then we bring in other practices like paired programming and mob programming where I'm getting input from other developers because my grandfather used to say, easy for you, difficult for me, right? Right. Uh, if somebody may say, it's very easy for me to write clean, well-understood code. I find that difficult because what's clean and well-understood to me is oftentimes not clean or well-understood to someone else. So having a pair there to say, Hey, Rich, I don't like your function name, or I think you have too many arguments, or um, 
why did you use that looping structure instead of recursion or something like that, right? We can have those conversations and we end up with a better intrinsic quality of the software that we build. Okay. And better understanding of it. So, you know, those are just two more XP type practices that we bring in, uh, you know, to, to, to give us the highest quality asset so that when we're done and the organization says pivot, we're ready to go. Okay. Um, I kind of, I maybe made a little bit of a leap of logic there at the end, but all of these practices layer on top of each other to give us the most effective software solution possible that, that we're capable of, right? Uh, with the goal of being able to uh, change that yeah. whenever we want, because software I, should be soft. It shouldn't be this brittle thing that we're afraid to touch. I don't think it was a leap. I mean, I've done a lot of interviews with Mike where we talk about, um, it's like a repeated repeating conversation about how organizations are like a fat guy on a couch and they, to be able to run a marathon, you've got to, you know, tune up your body first. And I think that these kinds sure. of practices are a way of getting in shape. Absolutely. I, I want to, I have sort of a weird developer question. When developers write code, are they, I mean, most developers, do they think of writing code for themselves? Like, am I writing this to please myself? Or am I writing it to get past my manager or whatever product owner? Or am I writing it like we were talking about, you know, for future people? Am I writing it for the next generation of people that are going to have to deal with my mess? Wow, that's kind of a tough question. So okay. uh, I think the really good developers yeah. are very conscientious about their teammates and the people who may come after them and very conscientious about the organization that they're building that software for. So they're thinking about not just themselves, but uh, like, you know, there's the point of pride, like what, look at the cool thing I did. Yeah. Uh, you know, Larry Wall told us that uh, impatience, laziness, and hubris are three qualities of good developer. And that hubris thing comes in with the, hey, look at what I did, check out my new shiny object. Yeah. So there's an aspect of that that I think almost every developer has some amount of in their you know, look at, look at the cool thing. Peacock it for the world. Yeah. And then there's the, you know, the product owner is expecting this by the end of the sprint or the program team is expecting this by uh, this feature by the end of the month. So I have to, there's some time pressure. I need to right. get this done. I, but it, it should be based on, I made a commitment. I said I could get this done. And so it's, again, it's your personal pride coming in. But I think that really good developers are also thinking about, do my teammates understand what I'm doing? Uh, six months from now, will I remember what this does or be able to understand what I did? And five years from now, I may be on a completely different division of the company or maybe not even at this company. Will the people after me uh, understand what I've done and be able to use it? And there's an aspect of, again, that's point of pride, but then there's just the professionalism of I'm doing the best that I can yeah. to communicate what is this all about? What is this code supposed to do? Okay. Um, so... I, uh, you know, like the, the fat guy on the couch analogy, um, you know, that, I guess that's okay. But what we really want is the, um, uh, not manic, but, but the, the hyperactive, um, <laughs> mentally ill fat guy on the couch. So. Yeah. The, the, the guy, <laughs> the guy who's cranking it out, who, uh, is really making sure that they're, they're being conscientious of all the aspects of their software. And that's yeah. part of why, you know, I, earlier I mentioned understanding what is our company's uh, yeah. 
intention, like why do we exist? If I have that connection, then it changes my perception of what I do for the organization because now what I do is really meaningful, right? Um, I got that whole thing from Mary Poppendeck's book on lean software, where she okay. goes to Samsung and stops to talk to a custodian and says to the custodian, you know, what do you do for the organization? And the custodian explained what Samsung does and their mission, and then related his job to what he was doing. He's like, I'm cleaning the floors in here so that these people have a comfortable, clean, cleanly workspace to do their job in so that their job function is not impeded by dirty floors. Yeah. You know, and that's really, really powerful. Like, why am I a JavaScript developer in this organization? So I can provide an excellent user experience for the, the patients at this hospital to get information about their medical records. Yeah. Not, not so that I can check the checkbox and say, I did react development this year. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I, I talk about this a lot in my classes because I'm, you know, people are always afraid to say no. And, and as part of the conversation of trying to explain that it is the most responsible thing that a development team can do when they're try somebody's trying to bully them into doing too much work is to say no, because that's the best way to serve the company and everybody who works there. And to just knuckle under is irresponsible. But I think yeah. you get lost. It, it's it's there. I think there's like it's there's a big shift between I'm going to survive my job and I'm here to build something for the future. Absolutely. A big Absolutely. gap. And I think, I think that's, you know, recently you see a lot of um, migration in job markets, people shifting from one company to another, yeah. oftentimes into totally different domains. So they go from manufacturing to insurance, from insurance to telco. Um, I know that my career trajectory has sort of loosely followed that in the sense that as a consultant, I go from one domain to another. Yeah. And I find that exciting and exhilarating because it's like, hey, you know, I'm really, I'm really beat down on telco and I'd like to go do something else. And here's an opportunity in insurance and it's a different mindset. But I think well, it's a different a place to learn for you. It's a different thing to learn, right? Right, right, exactly. And I think people who are more uh, classic career oriented that are doing that job hopping, yeah, they're, look they're looking for purpose to go with their autonomy, if they even have the autonomy. And they don't, they're not finding it because they don't understand their relationship to the business function. Wow. So they're just saying, Hey, you know, I slung JavaScript here for a year or two or three, and I pretty much seen all there is to see here. So I'm going to leave yeah, because I want to go experience a different JavaScript thing here and somebody's going to pay me more money. So I'll go. But if they were engaged in what does this business do? Like, why are we doing this? They might be saying, Hey, you know, I think I've, done all the JavaScript things, maybe there's a different part of this organization I could help with where I could take what I've learned in JavaScript and, and front-end development and apply it to back-end development or product ownership or quality assurance or somewhere else where I could be even more effective for our overarching goal as an organization. Now, do you think in an agile organization, maybe you've got some of the people you just described, but maybe you've got a bunch of people who they figured out how to do the job JavaScript thing at their company. And they like that they come to work and do the JavaScript thing. And then they go home. Yeah. Leave everything behind. Like they're not, that's not the thing that's driving them to work every day is this passion for, I am going to, you know, get better at my craft today. Their thing is whatever they're going to do outside of work. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, is that okay in an agile organization or does everybody have to be full on? Like I'm going to grow. I think it's better if everybody's full on, I'm going to grow, but I think that there's room for people in an organization who say, I have a job function. I have a set of capabilities that I'm constantly striving to improve upon. Okay. I, I think as long as people are engaged in improving the system, yeah. It's okay. They say, you know what? I'm perfectly happy here in software land. Um, today I'm a JavaScript developer. Tomorrow I'm a polyglot and maybe I know JavaScript and C sharp and a little bit of Ruby or something. Right. Okay. And, and they're, they're growing and they're being better software people, but that may, maybe they never want to get into product ownership. They never want to be an architect. They never want to move into. Yeah. They're good um, where they are. Program management. That's fine. Like that's terrific. I, I have friends you know, who've been coding one way or another for 45 years. Yeah. And they're still out there and, you know, you're thinking this dude's 70 years old. He's got to be a senior vice president or something by now. And he's like, nope, I'm a senior developer. and I love it. Every second of it. I don't do anything else. I'm switching my questions around. (laughs) You just pushed me into a corner. I have two questions left. Okay. So you've been at this for over 20 years. Yes. And the, you know, you just described this older person and the the people that popped into my mind immediately were Rod and Chet. Like th- that to me, there's the older generation in the agile crowd, the people that are still, when you're around them, it's like they're like glowing lights of inspiration because they're still so pumped about what they're doing. Yeah. You've been doing this for 20 years. And when I looked up, the first thing I saw was I have never seen anybody put their GitHub link in LinkedIn <laughs> before. And I look and you're still committing stuff fairly frequently. Um, what is it about the work that you do that still has you fired up? And what are the new things that you're chasing after right now? Ooh, well, um, maybe so just like top, just, top two or three, top two or three things. Right. So what's got me, uh, what keeps me excited is I like solving problems. Uh, and I, given my choice, right, I would just sit around and try to come up with the most elegant solution all the time. But there, I have a pragmatic side too that says, you know, sooner or later you actually have to ship it. Uh, <laughs> yes. So honing my craft to the point where I'm doing at least what I believe to be elegant. Uh, okay. I've certainly had plenty of arguments with people about elegance and what I think is elegant, they think is maybe not. Uh, so engaging in that and and it's sort of like art um i'm not a good painter i never have been but if i were a painter i could paint you know with still life uh the the traditional fruit bowl and, and say within some genre of art is that good art or bad art do i look like a kindergartner which would be the reality right um or or am i approaching some you know a skill uh, level of skill. Excellent. A level of skill. Am I am yeah. I approaching a Picasso level of cubism when I try to do, you know, fruit in a cubist style? Yeah. Uh, so when I write code, I think about my friends Jim Weirich, uh, you know, Magnus Starr, um, uh, Justin Searles, uh, and I and I think these about are peers the, that are inspirations to you. These are peers that are inspirations to me. Okay. And I think about. I think about Kent Beck and, and Chet Hendrickson and all those guys too. And I say, is this worthy of them? Wow. Am, am I getting to their level of the game? And if That's I'm not, great. 
then I say, all right, well, how can I improve? And maybe the answer is I go read their code. I go out on GitHub and I dig around in their repositories and say, am I doing this the way they would? And so you're studying their writing habits, studying their writing habits. And I read, I go to open source projects that I admire. And sometimes to my disappointment, I read their source code and I say, oh, well, maybe I, maybe I don't buy into uh, the way that they wrote this, but their, their tool is still cool. I just don't like the way they wrote it. And sometimes I find these little gems and nuggets. But don't, so having done this for a while, don't you, isn't it really, I mean, if you're doing that, isn't it really easy to slip into the old man, like get off my lawn? Like you look at what these young people are doing today and you're like, seriously? It doesn't oh, heck yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, oh heck yeah. <laughs> <Thank> so, <you. laughs> so I have a big rub against the Python community. Okay. Uh, I do a lot of Python development uh, in my spare time. Um, and I've met a number of Pythonistas who talk about the Pythonic way to do things. And I don't always agree. Okay. And they don't agree with me. And I've come to the conclusion that while they're in, their opinions are interesting, uh, they don't necessarily invalidate my thinking. Okay. Um, so I've always been a nonconformist. But it's still um, good to get that rub, don't you think? To get that. It totally irritant. is. Because it makes, right. I've always been a nonconformist. But there are certain things where conformity uh, serves a purpose. Yeah. So when we write object-oriented software, if we write it as object-oriented software, other object-oriented software developers can look at it and understand it. But if we write object-oriented software in a functional manner or a structured manner, the object-oriented people are going to poo-poo on that and say, what are you doing? Like, this is Java, not C. Why does this look like C? Yeah. So there's, there's some aspect of that, but there's also the, you know, the Python guys want to use functions where I might want to use classes or vice versa. And we have this sort of disagreement. And in my mind, that's a style thing. Yeah. It's where does the fork go? And exactly. And whenever I get into that contention of, I want to do this and the Pythonic thing to do is this other thing. <laughs> you do your thing. It's punk rock. It, it's punk rock. Yeah. I get yeah. to say, you know, I'm Joey Ramone here yeah. and, I'm, and I'm doing it my way. And I'm going to huff some glue and do my thing. Exactly. Yeah. Without the glue. <laughs> uh, I need to breathe myself. But, you know, it, it, it does force me to think about it and say, am I doing this to be contrarian? Am I doing this uh, because I think there's a benefit that the other folks don't realize? Am I doing this because I misunderstand something? And that enlightens me. That causes me to sit back and think, oh, I didn't understand that consequence with respect to how the Python runtime executes. And now that I understand that, it changes my thinking about these other things. Okay. And that makes me into a better developer, which gives me back into that, am I doing my cubist painting of fruit as well as Picasso might have done it? This is awesome. All of that for me is very intellectually stimulating. Like it keeps me going and... When I get in the zone and I'm coding, whatever, right? I can go yeah. for hours. Don't notice the time. I don't get tired. I don't get hungry. Um, I have a grand time at it. So I, I'm, I still really, really dig that. Okay. Uh, the second part of your question. So the first part was like, what's got me jazzed? What keeps me yeah. going? And what was the second part? 
are there any avenues that you're chasing right now that you're just like, this is my great question at the moment, or your koan of agile development? Okay, so I don't know that I can put it into a koan form, but <laughs> I, I, I look at possibly a haiku, but uh, okay. I look I look at a lot of uh, what I'll call modern trends in software development, like okay. um, CQS, uh, CQRS and the Redux pattern and microservices and things that we're talking about now that we didn't maybe talk about five years ago. And the uh, infrastructure as code is something I've been playing with a lot lately. Uh, but I look at all these things and I say, you know, of these things, like how much of this is sort of uh, uh, in the same way that there are vanity metrics, how much yeah. of this is vanity technology? Yeah. Like, my system has microservices. Yeah, but was that the right choice? Well, we uh, gave it a name, so it has to be. Sure, <laughs> sure, right? Like, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with microservices, yeah. but I hear, I hear microservices tossed around a lot. I hear refactoring tossed around a lot. Oh, and algorithm just, and machine learning, I mean, they're people. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, so I, I, I spend a lot of time lately looking at these sorts of things and, and debating in my head and, and publicly are we really going to get our bang for our buck? If I introduce this design pattern into a system, um, is it worth it? I, is it worth it? Am I really getting leverage out of it? Or could I do something simpler? And I like simple things uh, because simple things are typically very elegant, sort of like the spork, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's ugly, but it's functional, a though. It's a functional thing and it's simple. Mm -hmm. um, and I look at, at, you know, should I be doing microservices? Should I be using this design pattern or, or this technology here that's new, that's hot, like machine learning or whatever? Uh, so that's what I've been kind of playing around with. And the, and the infrastructure as code stuff, uh, really for me, it's just shifting where I'm writing the code. So it feels very natural, but it's giving me uh, a different experience of software in the sense that I'm thinking a lot more Okay. about how do I automate? How do I, how do I get to near frictionless deploys? It's just challenging um, your, your own belief system and how your work is done. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I came out of a Java community. Like early on, it was C and C++, and then Perl and Lotus Notes, and I was kind of headed that direction. And I took a hard left when Java came out and got into bare metal programming. Um, bare metal from the sense of I was programming the virtual machine, not hardware. Okay. But one of the things that, that Sun Microsystems led me on this path of uh, it is right once run anywhere. I don't have to think about the hardware anymore. I don't have to think about the infrastructure anymore. I hardly even need to consider that the network exists. And I got into this world where I had sort of just not worried about it because okay. WebSphere awesome. logic was going to do it for me. You continually create perfect segues into my next question. <laughs> I, think, I think this was a perfect segue. I'm going out on a limb with this one, so I don't know if it's going to work, but I want to try. All right, shoot. Last question before I ask for your contact info. So um, when I was learning about computers and learning about programming, probably about the same time frame you were, mm -hmm. um, somebody turned me on to the cathedral and the bazaar. And okay. that even though I'm not a programmer, that book like completely transformed the way I thought about technology and software and how people do this stuff. Sure. Is there anything 
more current than that? Like, I mean, is there a newer version of that that somebody, because that's kind of not even a thing anymore as much. Yeah, there's an aspect, there, there's, a, there's a part of me that says you can't beat the classics. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that was a great piece. Um, the Rise of Worse is Better, which you can find at the back of, I believe, the Unix Haters Handbook. Okay. Uh, or just Google it. Uh, it used to be on my, my website. Um, but that, that's a great piece. And that talks about um, the New Jersey way versus the, uh, um, the MIT way. Okay. Right? So <laughs> I, I get my, my perfect specification with my per perfect design and my perfect implementation for a perfect solution. But all of those things take an infinite amount of time. Yeah. Versus the New the Jersey handle. way. Right. <laughs> the the boys done. done Right. The boys down in Princeton said, you know, maybe be pragmatic. And I think I got a lot of pragmatism from that. And okay. Larry, being a pro programmer from the early 90s, Larry Wall had a big influence on my thinking about what is it to be a good programmer. And um, it's probably what helped create my resistance against the Pythonic thing is there's more than one way to do everything, which is sort of an underlying underpinning principle of the Perl programming language. Yeah, you don't have to all do it the same, but at the same time, um, everyone does know, it this way. <laughs> every everybody does it this way, right? And so you look at, you know, like, um, but that's like and that's totally like classic rock versus punk rock, or like stadium yeah. versus punk rock, right? What do you want to be? You want to be in television, or you want to be in some, you know, stadium band? Yeah, yeah, I want to be at CBGB on a right. Saturday night. Change um, the world. Exactly. So, you know, like a lot of those different influences, you know, have led me to a place where when I look at so-called enterprise Java, I cringe just as much as anybody else. And I say, why are you doing it like that? <laughs> uh, because that's stadium rock and you know, yeah. punk rock solution takes one tenth as many lines of code and is just as effective in the marketplace. So yeah. I, but you know, I, I'm really struggling for a modern equivalent well, maybe there isn't one. That's I did. That's why I wanted to ask because I've not seen anything or heard anybody talk about anything, and I'm just curious about it. Maybe that could be a writing project. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Maybe you and Nicolette need to write a book. Uh oh. <laughs> that that would be good. Dave and I could have some fun with that. Um, he's he's a little bit punk rock too. So yeah, very much so. Yeah. Cool. Well, this was awesome. Um. All right. So if folks want to get in touch with you, let's say that they want to ask you some follow-up questions, things like that. Um, what's the best way for them to reach you? Well, uh, two good ways would be uh, through my Twitter handle, which is net zero, N-E-T underscore Z-E-R, and then the digit zero, um, which is unfortunately named because with an O was taken already. Uh, <laughs> And uh, my LinkedIn page. I'm going to include links to these. And can I put your GitHub in here as well? Absolutely. Um, I, some of it is a little shameful and crusty, but uh, just count those as whip and we'll move on. <laughs> cool. All right. This was really great, Rich. Thanks a lot for taking time out of your afternoon. Hey, no problem. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>